folks, to Wellbeing Wednesdays. This is part two of my conversation with Title IX Sam Wilmoth um, about technology-enabled abuse. Hope you enjoy it. And now for keeping ourselves safe online, there are some sort of proactive steps that folks can put in place to make themselves a little bit more secure online. I know one of the things that NTAB talked about in their webinar that we attended was those websites that were public record searches that are free. So basically how these sites work is that you go, you enter someone's first and last name in the town that they're in and you see what pops up. And let me tell you, Sam, I went to this <laughs> sites. I put in my name in town. Holy smokes. It had every address I had ever lived at, including my current one. It had a really old email address, not my, not my current one, but had a lot of personal information out there that was all pulled from public records. What's nice is that at these sites, like the one I'm talking about is called fastpeoplesearch.com. If you go to fastpeoplesearch.com slash removal, you can find your records and then remove it uh, by entering your email address as that person. And then you'll get a confirmation that's been removed. But there are multiple sites out there like that, that you can go in and have your records removed, but it is something you have to do. You have to be proactive about it. And the reason we th- that was brought up is, I don't know if you remember this story about the young woman who was on Tinder. She had, she had used a fake name. She had just put the minimum number of pictures. She was talking to a gentleman and decided, no, nah, this isn't for me. And then an hour after they stopped talking, he texted her because he had did a reverse image search, found her Ooh. name, looked her up on one of these sites, found her phone number and, and did it that way. So it's kind of, it's, it's mind boggling to me that this information is out there and publicly available. So you can go and remove it yourself. And we'll put that in the, along with all the other resources you're given, but we'll put that resource in the description for this this episode of this podcast as well. Um, <laughs> and then, of course, you know, you have Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I don't know about TikTok because, again, I open it up. I have no idea what's happening. But <laughs> I know for those, you can actually restrict who's able to see it. So on Facebook, you, know, you can make it that only your friends can see, like, all, if not most of your information. So your profile picture and I believe your cover photo are always public, but the rest of your information, you can set it so that it is private and you can also limit what you put up there. And the same thing with Twitter and Instagram, you can make it so that only folks who follow you are able to see what you post. But I also know that some people don't like that because their point is maybe they want to gain a larger following. I mean, that's more difficult to do if their account is private. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And and I think another thing to keep in mind is that while every site that you could be using on the internet pretty much has privacy options, they also tend to change a lot. And it, the reason for that is that often the business model for these websites is to get you to share as much information as possible. Yes. And that's a, a, a weird thing to hear aloud or even to say aloud, but it is true. And often what a lot of these companies do is they change their privacy settings and you'll get some like completely opaque notification with a lot of legalese that says the policy has changed and no one is reading it. And like no one could reasonably be expected to read it. Um, But I would recommend, you know, put a little note on your calendar, maybe once a year, go back into your privacy settings and these sites and just like take a look and see what you can update because uh, the evolution of a lot of these platforms 
is to, you know, greater exposure of your information. And that means staying on top of it is, is really important. As to, you know, those sort of people search sites that you were just talking about, those can also be really useful. I would recommend that you do your research on them first, and it can really help to go through a kind of intermediary like NTAB and just make sure that the, the website you're now going to put more personal information into is in fact safe. But I will say I used one somewhat recently and was pleasantly surprised that my own information was relatively um, minimal, but they had like a bunch of stuff on my grandma who, who has been dead for like more than 20 years. And I was hot about this. I was like, do not mess with my grandma. And I, I don't, I mean, my, my grandma died, you know, before I would say like the kind of heyday of the internet and it was still out there. Yeah, um, that's and so I, I guess that I, I would say that when you can find a good service for um, searching this kind of thing and, and ultimately for removal, I think it is you know really helpful. I also think it's helpful to, to try to be really thoughtful about which platforms we join and, and how we engage with them. And you, you referenced um, OnlyFans uh, before, and so I think it's a maybe a really helpful thing for us to to talk about now. Yeah. Um, I think I want to be crystal clear about this that I do not think it is um, helpful for us to stigmatize sex work or sex workers in in any way as we're talking about these issues, right? And and so in no way do I want my conversation with you to be construed that way. But I do think that OnlyFans has been, frankly, pretty devious about, you know, all all kinds of uh, risks that they, they don't make pretty clear. So for example, a common experience for um, content creators on OnlyFans is that they they charge you know a subscription service for some kind of content. It, it is often, though not always, pornographic content. And they they cannot stop their subscribers from recording the information that they are transmitting through some of their means. And then they might find, for instance, that what they thought was a private performance of some kind um, has now ended up without their permission on a site like Pornhub, for example. And so there's there's that risk always there. The, the lion's share of people who create an OnlyFans account, you know, searching for, you know, maybe some additional money, for example, do not actually make that much money. The number of, of successful performers on that website is relatively small. That's another thing to think about. Yeah. Um, and and fine. Oh, go ahead, please. Well, no, I was thinking, I remember because I, so NTAB has a webinar about OnlyFans. And so I watched it because I didn't know too much about it. And I think to some of the points that you made, I think there is more of a misunderstanding about how the site operates because when you create an OnlyFans account, folks might be wanting to gain a lot of followers so that they can make more money. But the thing is, that was, the OnlyFans platform wasn't created for that. It was basically for folks who already had a following to sort of move it over because it's difficult to search on OnlyFans to, to build a following. So if they, someone had a lot of fans on Instagram, they can say, hey, come to my OnlyFans. Just, like I can have exclusive content for you for the subscription price. Like that's how people would make more money. And I think the average for a content creator on OnlyFans is $150. And that's uh, what I believe is what happened is the statistic so it's Mm -hmm. it's not a lot of money and it is a lot of work that folks are putting in to their content and yeah just it's not really reaping those benefits yeah and a lot of the performers on the site will also experience other kinds of you know online harassment or mistreatment right or or doxing or any number of other things 
And to be clear, that is the fault of the abusive people engaged in those yeah. behaviors, right? And so again, like it, this, the point of this is not to stigmatize, you know, sex work or some kind of performance. The, the point of this is to say that that it helps to have our eyes wide open when, you know, we, we join any new online service of, of any description. And I think, you know, OnlyFans is, is no different. Yeah. And I think in some ways it sort of facilitates the abuse of the creators, you know, by the users because they they pay a subscription fee, right, to follow a certain person. And then it sort of gives them this feeling of entitlement of, well, I can now make demands because I do have this personal contact. I do pay for this. So if they don't meet my demand, then I take my money away and I, I take my subscription away. And that's that's something to think about too. And it's just, it's just sad. I just, I don't like it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I do think one thing that is useful for, for us to, to talk about are, are different places or agencies that someone could report kind, kinds of abuse they might experience online. There are a lot of them, um, okay, which good. is both, I think, a, a good and bad, right? So it's, it's good that someone might have different places that they can seek help, but what it often reflects is that there's a like a kind of patchwork of resources and laws in our country depending on relatively arbitrary things like which state you happen to be living in and you know we mentioned for example that there are i think 48 states that have laws against image based sexual abuse but many of those laws are quite different. So some of them have pretty onerous requirements, like that it's required for, for prosecutors to show that um, someone who has engaged in image-based sexual abuse has done so maliciously. That is that they um, want to, to create real harm. And, you know, depending on how those cases are argued, you know, someone could say, well, no, no, I wasn't trying to hurt anyone. I was just trying to make a profit. Right. And that, that might not be sufficient under that law. So, you know, like, this is all relatively um, arbitrary at this point, you know, based on all kinds of factors. But um, I want to highlight some potential places to go for help. The, the first one I'd highlight is our office, because if you are uh, experiencing some kind of, you know, technology-enabled abuse, and you know, at the hands of, say, a you know, a, a WVU student or a, you know, WVU staff member or faculty member, then we have policies um, against this very thing. And we have investigators on staff who, you know, can look into each individual case and, and try, you know, to address um, whatever harm may be there. And so that's, that's one possibility is that if you happen to be part of an educational institution, you can go to sort of the Title IX office. And that, that's a, a possibility. The uh, other possibility that I'd highlight is that many of the, the platforms themselves have ways of reporting, you know, misconduct or, or asking to have certain kinds of material removed or perhaps reclaiming an account that's been stolen. There's a whole lot of websites here, and I can't always attest to how effective each one is at offering these services. But they nevertheless do. So one kind of um, specific abuse that we haven't really talked about yet is uh, called deep fakes. And this is where, you know, artificial intelligence is used to essentially take someone else's face and, and put it on the, the, the body of another human being. This is most often done in some kind of uh, pornography that someone's face is taken and, and, and put on a, a performer's body. And, and it, you know, it's a kind of, of harassment that, that can happen. But Google has you know, a specific policy and protections about deep fakes and about removing them from search results. That's just like one example of how you know, sites can be used 
Then the, the next, next possibility for reporting or getting help would be law enforcement. And this could be local law enforcement, certainly, but it could also be the FBI, which has jurisdiction over a lot of internet-based crime. So there's that option. If um, something is happening in a place where you're working, another possibility is that you go to your human resources at office. And so this would be at WVU, we call this office talent and culture, but that could be another place where, you know, sort of employee on employee misconduct, you know, could be addressed. And then the last place that I would highlight here is uh, the court system. You know, there are civil remedies for a lot of these behaviors. So for instance, you know, civil suits where financial damages can be sought, protective orders or restraining orders that can be sought in say a magistrate court, for example, there are lots of potential places that someone could go and not everyone is going to feel equally um, comfortable or empowered in pursuing those options, but they are there. The last option I would highlight is local you know, domestic violence shelters and rape crisis centers, places that run victim advocacy organizations, often have victim advocates that are about as well versed in the local resources as anyone can be. And they can guide you through how to get help for a friend or how to get help for yourself. So the rape crisis center in our area is is called RDVIC, the Rape and Domestic Violence Information Center. And their services are available 24 hours a day, and they are free. So there's lots of people who who care about you or who care about your loved one. I can promise you are not alone. And I hope that anyone experiencing technology-enabled abuse, you know, can get some help and fast because the harm here is real. This shouldn't happen to anyone. And when it does, we need to make sure they're getting the help they need. Yeah. And I and I think a question folks might be asking themselves after they listen to all this is like, well, why can't we hold the platforms accountable for the behavior of its users? But that is a specific stipulation. And you're going to have to remind me of the the exact law, Sam, because I cannot remember it. But it's part of like the FCC regulations that basically say platforms are not responsible for the behavior of their users. And so that's why like you don't see, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram being in these giant court cases for things like this because of that particular regulation. Yeah, I, this is, I think, really important for us to know. I believe the law is called Section 230. And I, you know, I, I don't want to uh, lapse into giving legal advice here uh, rather than just giving basic synopses of, of laws. But my understanding of it is, is that as the code is currently written, that many platforms are treated, you know, essentially like open forums that are not liable for the content that that appears there. And that's like not the case with every other kind of platform, right? The, the, right. the, the place to, to contrast this with is like with a newspaper. So in a newspaper that which, you know, some of your younger listeners may not be familiar with. I just want to walk you through what this was. It was a piece of paper that you could unfold and read and it had the news on it. DA, Sam. Come yes, on. That's true. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> that's what the DA um, is, the print version. <laughs> unfortunately, um, in my view, um, newspapers are, are sort of being, um, you know, de-emphasized. And I think they're really important institutions. But yeah. in a newspaper, you absolutely could not, you know, publish something that was like maliciously untrue without incurring some kind of liability. You certainly couldn't publish something like a a threat, which is all over the internet, right? People get, um, you know, death threats all the time, especially if they're a public figure. And, you know, that that is very different, I would say, than than how we um, treat, you know, a big company like Facebook. So, you know, kind of policy question that we need to unfurl 
here and, and really take a close look at is, are these platforms, you know, more like a public square, you know, the, the people who build a, like a, a plaza at the center of town are, you know, not liable for what people go there and say? Or are they more like a newspaper that has like some degree of editorial responsibility and therefore liability for, you know, content um, that, that could be um, you know, damaging or harmful somehow? So that's a big legal question for, you know, for all of us to, to think about. But it, at least as I understand it currently, is, is the law of the land. So, yeah. you know, really, really good question. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've been talking for a long time. This might be the longest episode I've ever had. So <laughs> it's it's been an honor, Courtney. Yes. Um, just, I love. I always chalk love it our, up to my. I always love our. Conference. I have a total lack of discipline here. That's, I, that's the problem. <laughs> no, it was great. I loved it. But I learned some things. Obviously, apologies to listeners for using a term like revenge porn. I will now use non-consensual pornography or other terms that are more appropriate and more approved by some of our like leading and guiding organizations. So my apologies to our listeners for that. But I've always appreciate, like, I always learn something when I talk to you, Sam. I love it. Oh, good. Well, thank you. I, I am a devoted listener to your podcast and I always listen think, or uh, listen to your episodes and learn a whole bunch about STIs and other stuff that I did not know. So, you know, the, the feeling is, is mutual. Let me just tell you, I don't think the apology is, is necessary and I'll say why. Okay. The, the, Revenge porn is, is the term that a lot of people in the public would have understood. And without saying it at one point, it's totally possible that the listeners would not have known what we were talking about. So I want to critique the term, but I think as a facilitator, you absolutely had to use it just to sort of make sure that everyone listening understands the nature of, of the abuse we're describing. All right, Sam. Now I feel validated. Oh, I love it. I just, ah, oh, affirming. <sighs> Just great. I love it. All right. Well, thank you to everyone who stuck with us. This might be two episodes. So it could, this could be the end of the second episode at this point, but whatever. I loved it so much. But thank you, Sam. I really appreciate your time and your expertise. And we could, I think we could go another like four episodes on this particular topic because it's just, it's so pervasive and there are so many different angles that it can take and so many intersections that are possible. So just to our listeners, we'll put all, most of the resources that we've been talking about in the description of the podcast. Of course, like you can always reach out to our friends in Title IX for more information, but we appreciate your time and attention and we will catch you next time on Wellbeing Wednesdays. to Wellbeing Wednesdays. This is part two of my conversation with Title IX Sam Wilmoth um, about technology-enabled abuse. Hope you enjoy it. And now for keeping ourselves safe online, there are some sort of proactive steps that folks can put in place to make themselves a little bit more secure online. I know one of the things that NTAB talked about in their webinar that we attended was those websites that were public record searches that are free. So basically how these sites work is that you go, you enter someone's first and last name in the town that they're in and you see what pops up. And let me tell you, Sam, I went to this one of these sites. I put in my name in town. Holy smokes. It had every address I had ever lived at, including my current one. It had a really old email address, not my, not my current one, but had a lot of personal information out there that was all pulled from public records. What's nice is that at these sites, like the one I'm talking about is called fastpeoplesearch.com. 
If you go to fastpeoplesearch.com slash removal, you can find your records and then remove it uh, by entering your email address as that person. And then you'll get a confirmation that's been removed. But there are multiple sites out there like that, that you can go in and have your records removed. But it is something you have to do. You have to be proactive about it. And the reason we th- that was brought up is, I don't know if you remember this story about the young woman who was on Tinder. She had, she had used a fake name. She had just put the minimum number of pictures. She was talking to a gentleman and decided, no, nah, this isn't for me. And then an hour after they stopped talking, he texted her because he had did a reverse image search, found her Ooh. name, looked her up on one of these sites, found her phone number and, and did it that way. So it's kind of, it's, it's mind boggling to me that this information is out there and publicly available. So you can go and remove it yourself. And we'll put that in the, along with all the other resources you're given, but we'll put that resource in the description for this this episode of this podcast as well. Um, <laughs> and then of course, you know, you have Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I don't know about TikTok because again, I open it up. I have no idea what's happening, but <laughs> I know for those, you can actually restrict who's able to see it. So on Facebook, you know, you can make it that only your friends can see like all, if not most of your information. So your profile picture and I believe your cover photo are always public, but the rest of your information, you can set it so that it is private and you can also limit what you put up there. And the same thing with Twitter and Instagram, you can make it so that only folks who follow you are able to see what you post. But I also know that some people don't like that because their point is maybe they want to gain a larger following. I mean, that's more difficult to do if their account is private. So yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And and I think another thing to keep in mind is that while every site that you could be using on the internet pretty much has privacy options, they also tend to change a lot. And it, the reason for that is that often the business model for these websites is to get you to share as much information as possible. Yes. And that's a, a, a weird thing to hear aloud or even to say aloud, but it is true. And often what a lot of these companies do is they change their privacy settings and you'll get some like completely opaque notification with a lot of legalese that says the policy has changed and no one is reading it. And like no one could reasonably be expected to read it. Um, But I would recommend, you know, put a little note on your calendar, maybe once a year, go back into your privacy settings and these sites and just like take a look and see what you can update because uh, the evolution of a lot of these platforms is to, you know, greater exposure of your information. And that means staying on top of it is is really important. As to, you know, those sort of people search sites that you were just talking about, those can also be really useful. I would recommend that you do your research on them first. And it can really help to go through a kind of intermediary like NTAB and just make sure that the the website you're now going to put more personal information into is in fact safe. But I will say I used one somewhat recently and was pleasantly surprised that my own information was relatively um, minimal. But they had like a bunch of stuff on my grandma who who has been dead for like more than 20 years. And I was hot about this. I was like, do not mess with my grandma. And I, I don't, I mean, my, my grandma died, you know, before I would say like the kind of heyday of the internet and it was still out there. Yeah, um, and so I, I guess that I, I would say that when you can find a good service for um, searching this kind of thing and, and ultimately for removal, I think it is you know really helpful. I also think it's helpful 
to, to try to be really thoughtful about which platforms we join and, and how we engage with them. And you, you referenced um, OnlyFans uh, before. And so I think it's a, maybe a really helpful thing for us to, to talk about now. Yeah. Um, I think I want to be crystal clear about this, that I do not think it is um, helpful for us to stigmatize sex work or sex workers in, in any way as we're talking about these issues, yeah. right? And, and so in right. no way do I want my conversation with you to be construed that way. But yeah. I do think that OnlyFans has been, f- frankly, pretty devious about you know all, all kinds of uh, risks that they, they don't make pretty clear. So for example, a common experience for um, content creators on OnlyFans is that they they charge you know a subscription service for some kind of content? It, it is often, though not always, pornographic content, and they they cannot stop their subscribers from recording the information that they are transmitting through some other means. And then they might find, for instance, that what they thought was a private performance of some kind um, has now ended up without their permission on a site like Pornhub, for example. And so. There's there's that risk always there. The the lion's share of people who create an OnlyFans account, you know, searching for you know maybe some additional money, for example, do not actually make that much money. The number of, of successful performers on that website is relatively small. That's another thing to think about. Yeah. Um, and and fine. Oh, go ahead, please. Well, no, I think I remember because I so NTAB has a webinar about OnlyFans, and so I watched it because I didn't know too much about it. And I think to some of the points that you made. I think there is more of a misunderstanding about how the site operates because when you create an OnlyFans account, folks might be wanting to gain a lot of followers so that they can make more money. But the thing is that the OnlyFans platform wasn't created for that. It was basically for folks who already had a following to sort of move it over because it's difficult to search on OnlyFans to to build a following. So if someone had a lot of fans on Instagram, they can say, hey, come to my OnlyFans. Like I can have exclusive content for you for the subscription price. Like that's how people would make more money. And I think the average for a content creator on OnlyFans is $150. And that's uh, what I believe is what happened is the statistic so it's Mm. it's not a lot of money and it is a lot of work that folks are putting in to their content and yeah just it's not really reaping those benefits yeah and a lot of the performers on the site will also experience other kinds of you know online harassment or mistreatment right or or doxing or any number of other things And to be clear, that is the fault of the abusive people engaged in those behaviors, right? And so again, like the point of this is not to stigmatize, you know, sex work or some kind of performance. The the point of this is to say that that it helps to have our eyes wide open when, you know, we we join any new online service of of any description. And I think, you know, OnlyFans is, is no different. Yeah. And I think in some ways it sort of facilitates the abuse of the creators, you know, by the users because they they pay a subscription fee, right, to follow a certain person. And then it sort of gives them this feeling of entitlement of, well, I cannot make demands because I do have this personal contact. I do pay for this. So if they don't meet my demand, then I take my money away and I, I take my subscription away. And that's that's something to think about too. And it's just, it's just sad. I just, I don't like it. 
Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I do think one thing that is useful for, for us to, to talk about are, are different places or agencies that someone could report kind of, kinds of abuse they might experience online. There are a lot of them, um, oh, which good. is both, I think, a, a good and bad, right? So it's, it's good that someone might have different places that they can seek help. But what it often reflects is that there's a like a kind of patchwork of resources and laws in our country, depending on relatively arbitrary things like which state you happen to be living in. And, you know, we mentioned, for example, that there are, I think, 48 states that have laws against image-based sexual abuse, but many of those laws are quite different. So some of them have pretty onerous requirements, like that it's required for for prosecutors to show that um, someone who has engaged in image-based sexual abuse has done so maliciously. That is that they um, want to to create real harm. And, you know, depending on how those cases are argued, you know, someone could say, well, no, 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 I wasn't trying to hurt anyone. I was just trying to make a profit. Right. And that that might not be sufficient under that law. So, you know, like, this is all relatively um, arbitrary at this point, you know, based on all kinds of factors. But um, I want to highlight some potential places to go for help. The, the first one I'd highlight is our office, because if you are uh, experiencing some kind of you know technology-enabled abuse, and you know at the hands of say a you know a, a WVU student or a you know WVU staff member or faculty member, then we have policies um, against this very thing. And we have investigators on staff who you know, can look into each individual case and, and try you know, to address um, whatever harm may be there. And so that's, that's one possibility is that if you happen to be part of an educational institution, you can go to sort of the Title IX office. And that, that's a, a possibility. The uh, other possibility that I'd highlight is that many of the, the platforms themselves have ways of reporting, you know, misconduct or or asking to have certain kinds of material removed or perhaps reclaiming an account that's been stolen. There's a whole lot of websites here, and I can't always attest to how effective each one is at offering these services, but they nevertheless do. So one kind of um, specific abuse that we haven't really talked about yet is uh, called deep fakes. And this is where, you know, artificial intelligence is used to essentially take someone else's face and, and put it on the, the, the body of another human being. This is most often done in some kind of uh, pornography that someone's face is taken and, and, and put on a, a performer's body. And, and it, you know, it's a kind of, of harassment that, that can happen. But Google has you know, a specific policy and protections about deep fakes and about removing them from search results. That's just like one example of how you know, sites can be used. Then the, the next, next possibility for reporting or getting help would be law enforcement. And this could be local law enforcement, certainly, but it could also be the FBI, which has jurisdiction over a lot of internet-based crime. So there's that option. If um, something is happening in a place where you're working, another possibility is that you go to your human resources at office. And so this would be at WVU, we call this office talent and culture, but that could be another place where, you know, sort of employee on employee misconduct, you know, could be addressed. And then 
The last place that I would highlight here is uh, the court system. You know, there are civil remedies for a lot of these behaviors. So for instance, you know, civil suits where financial damages can be sought, protective orders or restraining orders that can be sought in say a magistrate court, for example, there are lots of potential places that someone could go and not everyone is going to feel equally um, comfortable or empowered in pursuing those options, but they are there. The last option I would highlight is local domestic violence shelters and rape crisis centers, places that run victim advocacy organizations often have victim advocates that are about as well versed in the local resources as anyone can be. And they can guide you through how to get help for a friend or how to get help for yourself. So the rape crisis center in our area is is called RDVIC, the Rape and Domestic Violence Information Center. And their services are available 24 hours a day and they are free. So there's lots of people who, who care about you or who care about your loved one. I can promise you are not alone. And I hope that anyone experiencing technology-enabled abuse you know, can get some help and fast because the harm here is real. This shouldn't happen to anyone. And when it does, we need to make sure they're getting the help they need. Yeah. And I, and I think a question folks might be asking themselves after they listen to all this is like, well, why can't we hold the platforms accountable for the behavior of its users? But that is a specific stipulation. And you're going to have to remind me of the, the exact law, Sam, because I cannot remember it. But it's part of like the FCC regulations that basically say platforms are not responsible for the behavior of their users. And so that's why like you don't see, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram being in these giant court cases for things like this because of that particular regulation. Yeah, I this is I think really important for us to know. I believe the law is called Section 230 and I you know, I, I don't want to uh, lapse into giving legal advice here uh, rather than just giving basic synopses of, of laws. But my understanding of it is, is that as the code is currently written, that many platforms are treated, you know, essentially like open forums that are not liable for the content that that appears there. And that's like not the case with every other kind of platform, right? The, the, right. the place to, to contrast this with is like with a newspaper. So in a newspaper that which, you know, some of your younger listeners may not be familiar with. I just want to walk you through what this was. It was a piece of paper that you could unfold and read and it had the news on it. DA, Sam. Come yes, on. That's true. That's true. It, yeah. <laughs> that's what the DA um, is, the print version. <laughs> unfortunately, um, in my view, um, newspapers are, are sort of being, um, you know, de-emphasized. And I think they're really important institutions. But yeah. in a newspaper, you absolutely could not, you know, publish something that was like maliciously untrue without incurring some kind of liability. You certainly couldn't publish something like a a threat, which is all over the internet, right? People get, um, you know, death threats all the time, especially if they're a public figure. And, you know, that that is very different, I would say, than than how we um, treat, you know, a big company like Facebook. So, you know, kind of policy question that we need to unfurl here and, and really take a close look at is, are these platforms, you know, more like a public square, you know, the, the people who build a, like a, a plaza at the center of town are, you know, not liable for what people go there and say, or are they more like a newspaper that has like some degree of editorial responsibility and therefore liability for, you know, content um, that, that could be um, you know, damaging or harmful somehow. So that's a big legal question for, you know, for all of us to to think about, but it at least as I understand it currently is is the law of the land. So yeah. you know, really, really good question. Yeah, 
Well, I mean, we've been talking for a long time. This might be the longest episode I've ever had. So <laughs> it's it's been an honor, Courtney. Yes. Um, I love. I always chalk it up to my. I always love our I have a total lack of discipline here. That's that's the problem. (laughs) No, it was great. I loved it. But I learned some things, obviously. Apologies to listeners for using a term like revenge porn. I will now use non-consensual pornography or other terms that are more appropriate and more approved by some of our like leading and guiding organizations. So my apologies to our listeners for that. But I've always appreciate like I always learn something when I talk to you, Sam. I love it. Oh, good. Well, thank you. I I am a devoted listener to your podcast, and I always listen think or uh, listen to your episodes and learn a whole bunch about STIs and other stuff that I did not know. So you know the the feeling is is mutual. Let me just tell you, I don't think the apology is is necessary, and I'll say why. Okay. The, the revenge porn is is the term that a lot of people in the public would have understood, and without saying it at one point. It's totally possible that the listeners would not have known what we were talking about. So I want to critique the term, but I think as a facilitator, you absolutely had to use it just to sort of make sure that everyone listening understands the nature of of the abuse we're describing. All right, Sam. Now I feel validated. Oh, I love it. I just, ah, affirming. Just great. I love it. All right. Well, thank you to everyone who stuck with us. This might be two episodes. So it could, this could be the end of the second episode at this point, but whatever. I loved it so much. But thank you, Sam. I really appreciate your time and your expertise. And we could, I think we could go another like four episodes on this particular topic because it's just... It's so pervasive and there are so many different angles that it can take and so many intersections that are possible. So just to our listeners, we'll put all, most of the resources that we've been talking about in the description of the podcast. Of course, like you can always reach out to our friends in Title IX for more information, but we appreciate your time and attention and we will catch you next time on Wellbeing Wednesdays. (laughs) 